Thank you for the slamming of the bass strings for us in Decent Obsession and welcome to episode 4 of the Champagne Comedy Podcast where we talk about the best Australian comedy show from the 90s ever made which is Late Show and other Degeneration comedy tidbits. My name is Matt and joining us on this podcast today is in alphabetical order Alison, Daniel, Kim and Prue. How are you all? Very well. Very good, thank yeah, you. Good. Cool. <laughs> I'm I'm feeling a bit Kelsey at the moment. <laughs> oh, nice. That was a sorry thing. Well, you, quite, you, quite the, you do have the curliest hair, from what I can see. Yeah, I've 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 maintained a beard and um, I kept all of my long hair. Although I am boarding on, on the front, but uh, I've I've kept my little ISO beard since uh april i might cut it off at the end of the year depending on how the year goes at the moment i just i, I look i look very i don't know tramp like i don't know if you can get it on the camera there you might need to take a trip to the uh disheveled gentleman later you look like Prince yeah. or Coppola. <laughs> i don't know whether to take that as a compliment or not definitely a compliment. <laughs> all right thank you for joining us for episode four of uh the champagne comedy podcast and Episode three was fantastic. Special shout out to Spencer and Nikki Housen for joining us. Uh, that, was, that was a lot of fun and it was great to see just a different perspective, really, of the show and um, how they bonded over it. Let's get straight into this, really, because we've got some feedback already from episode three. And straight up here, we have something from Scott. Now, Daniel, you got someone who is part of the club as well, who has a copy yeah. of Amigos Paris Empre. Yeah, and and he seems to have it in a plastic cover, whereas I've just got it in the uh, in the the lowly pauper cardboard cover. Yeah, it's like I'm amazed that we we haven't found any uh, any more of that because it was number one for about six weeks in 1992. It did last a unless long there's time. a whole bunch uh, that that are floating around op shops. Other than that, we have uh, oh, a little bit of. I know this is a bit of weird feedback, but this one uh, is straight out of iTunes. Which uh, Grunge Salad, that's a heck of a username here, said they didn't even know that they needed this podcast, but they did. And so they gave us a five star rating. So if you're uh, getting, if you're streaming this online, if you haven't subscribed, you can get it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, like the whole lot of them. So every way that you get your podcast. So give us a five star rating or three dolphins and a Rudgut. So. Something and anything at all, so that'll be great. So we appreciate you downloading and having a listen. Uh, Scotty Boy from Twitter says, uh, and this is back to the bad album covers, um, hence the Indecent Obsession throwback earlier. He said, when Indecent Obsession first reached Australian Top 40, they played a free gig on the rooftop at Meyer Burke Street. I discovered this by accident when I went to investigate where why many teenage girls were walking through the sixth floor and going outside. Uh, a decent <laughs> obsession blew Melbourne away, well, mainly Maya. And Beros, or Beros1969 on Twitter also said that uh, they're looking forward to listening to this every time because they get to dust off their VHS tape as well. So join the club, mate. Well done. And thank <laughs> you for keeping – we're not the only crazy ones who has our, our own VHS copies. Just, and and ho- hopefully he's taken the, the tab out as well. so it doesn't oh, get That was very important. Oh, yes, indeed, yeah. Because if you did put your sticky tape, you remember putting the sticky tape over the tabs? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Always had to take the tab off for the late show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tab off. Yeah. (laughs) Tab off. Tab off. Tab off. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so Ross McPhee uh, has emailed saying hello that he liked our discussion about Robert Fidgen. And for some reason that he followed his career closely after regularly uh, starting slagging off the late show and other working dog projects that came up with it. Now, this is a little bit long, but I'll try to make it as short as possible. You may remember that the panel first started in 1998. One of the core cast members was uh, who would appear on the show of Martin Malloy each week to promote it. In one appearance, Jane Kennedy discussed uh, Fidgen's interview with her for the Herald Sun TV Guide. This was Jane Kennedy's first time hosting a show since it started. Fidgen's angle was that Kennedy was both excited and nervous about hosting the show and that she was also grateful that Rob, Tommy G and Santo for giving her the opportunity because, being a woman, she wasn't sure that they would allow her to. Now, oh, I, yeah. What a load of shit. Actually, rather than speak to her, Fidgen fabricated the whole story. This uh, What? Yeah, big question mark there. This was years before fake news was even a thing. Uh, she was justifiably offended uh, because Fidgen was patronising and sexist towards her in this article. Oh, goody, I'm a girl, I get to host, she said, paraphrasing Fidgen. And another time that he wrote an article where he got Tommy G's name wrong, calling him Paul Gleisner. So <laughs> plenty of research from Rob Fidgen <laughs> That's here. terrible. How condescending to Jane that is. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that was... when um, when Jane hosted the panel. She did it two weeks in a row. I can't remember exactly why, but she got she got a lot of stick for that. And I thought she was great. Oh, she was amazing. I think they're the only two I have on tape. <laughs> we got to try. Well, go. I got a few. <laughs> I think I got yeah, one. That, that 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 sort of stuff about so being grateful to the rest of the gang doesn't sound like Jane at all. No, no. It, doesn't, it doesn't sound like the Jane we know. It doesn't understand their dynamic at all. No, it's sarcasm from her. And uh, fast forward a few years and Fidgen wrote an article listing Australia's worst TV comedy shows. He included Funky Squad on the list, claiming it was so bad it only lasted seven episodes. Never mind that the, the fact it was always intended to be a short run of the series because they couldn't stretch out the joke any further. Even though it was based <laughs> off the uh, radio serial named by the same thing, which was mm-hmm. Funky Squad, yeah. Uh, that's that's like saying Faulty Towers is so bad that it only lasted 12 episodes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Do your research. <laughs> yeah, that's a warning <laughs> to all you reviewers and people out there who decide to bag stuff out. Make sure you back yourself, or otherwise you get big fans like us who come back with the vengeance. Yeah, 30 years later, <laughs> laying your booty. <laughs> <laughs> that showed him. <laughs> Okay, so episode four of Champagne Comedy, we are going to discuss anything to do with this episode, which is season one, episode four, broadcasting Saturday, August 8, 1992. Now, Daniel, yeah. uh, I'll leave the floor up to you if you have anything to lead into the actual episode. Unfortunately, I, I didn't find this, but um, Matt, you found it. A review from uh, August the 3rd, somehow promoting this upcoming episode, a bit of a backhanded review, really, from Robin Oliver in the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, so he writes, the degeneration and honoured naming comedy since an ABC scout discovered the company working the university circuit in Melbourne has been copying flat for this new series. The criticism is deserved for it is a very sloppy production, ill-conceived and poorly directed. These agreeable young people, 
hit the screen with the high octane spirit. Uh, there was a terrific opening sketch involving a dozy Charles and a suicidal Diana. Uh, they're talking about that sketch again. Uh, a couple of characters ripe for lampooning and there have been other good moments. But an hour is a long time for unrelieved sketch style humour. No other program that comes to mind attempts such a marathon, not even the noisy and muddled The Big Gig, which translates poorly to screen and is much funnier live in the ABC's Ripley Studios. This critic, thinning on top, will no doubt be accused of suffering from some sort of degenerated gap. But almost any comedy properly done can win my smiles. I have a soft spot for dinosaurs. Just love those tales. God, he loves dinosaurs. I believe I am not too far off course in suggesting that two young men yelling dickhead, dickhead, dickhead is desperately unfunny. Oh, um, wow. He then says salams to Jason Stevens, Tony Martin, Jane Kennedy, Rob Stitch, Sando Chalero, Tom Gleisner and Mick Malloy. But I urge the ABC to preserve their talent by cutting this program to 30 minutes. Uh, Magda Zhivansky, Michael Veach, and that incomparable uh, straight face, Mark Downey, are all alumni of the original Degeneration. Discipline is all this lot needs to follow in their adventurous footsteps. So, well, a very disjointed review there. What yeah. paper was that in? Uh, Sydney Morning Herald. Critics in the early 90s seem to be absolutely obsessed with wanting to get back to the good old days of variety, you know, where halfway through the show, some some sort of middle of the road singer will come on and, and do something, sing some dreadful song. You know, um, yeah, it's they just they just sort of don't really quite get this, do they? I was listening to some other um, reviewers the other day talking about how now they're pressured to watch like a whole series or even like multiple series <laughs> before they review something. And I wish a bit of, of that pressure had been applied to these ancient dinosaurs who were reviewing shows in the 90s because, honestly, if they were reviewing after episode four, which is an absolute banger, they would have got the show. Like, I just don't think they're at all fair. And instead of sort of giving it a go, they've just completely burned it down. And said dumb things. Like, how old is this person? Like, it sounds like they're ancient. Like, don't they get that people like Mark Downey and Michael and that they'd moved on to other projects? Like, oh, it's just nuts. It, it does seem like the review was only written after after watching episode one because, yeah, the, the only stuff that's referenced from the show seems to be from that first episode. So <laughs> that very opening sketch with Charles and Di and two young men yelling, dickhead, 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 that was from episode one as well. So he, he I, I don't think he watched episodes two or three. Well, he retired from The Guide in 2008. He's passed away now. Uh, he passed away in 2011. It says, Robin Oliver uh, saw his first television transmission in 1937. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> uh, Must have been a test transmission wow. if it was in the 30s. Yeah. Unless, like, unless, it. unless it was in Britain or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, here we go. Uh, yeah, so Robin George Owen Oliver saw his first television transmission in 1937 in Croydon, Surrey, where Grant's uh, department store had yeah. a demonstration model on display in its shop front. So that gives you a rough idea on how... That sounds like he was 70. Is that right? If I I'd, got my maths yeah, right? Yeah, I'd say that. I'd say so. Yeah. For God's yeah. sake. So his, he saw his first transmission in, in the 1930s and he probably didn't like that transmission either. <laughs> <laughs> it's too static. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should, 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 should have been half down to 30 minutes, yeah. <laughs> Straight after, uh, actually, I've found the program guide here. 
for the uh, this episode. And guess what was on Aspel & Co. straight afterwards? <laughs> so we've got to get an Aspel & Co. chat in. Uh, we have Patricia Routledge. You may know her as oh, Hyacinth. Oh, for keeping up appearances. Yes. Hyacinth Croquet herself. Yes. Sean Young as well and Anthony Hopkins for Silence of the Lambs. Ooh, what a lineup! Yeah. Yep. And before that, Smith and Jones. And Rage was Public Enemy in Ice Tea. Oh, banger. Yep. And uh, according to the, the Melbourne guide that, that I've got, between Aspel and Company and Rage was a nice little palate cleanser, Carol Burnett and Friends. So oh, I, wow. I don't. That's a good show. I, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, but see. I'm thinking that's a weird lead-in for Rage. Like, Carol Burnett and Public Enemy, they really go together, don't they? Well, It's quite interesting um, when you guys read these out because it, it makes you realise the difference in programming back then to now. Now they have the luxury of other channels and, you know, streaming channels and things that are online, whereas then they had to just cram it all in. And so if things were on at, like, 11.50 p.m., that was, like, normal. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, there really is something for everyone in that lineup, isn't there? Well, if you look mm. on Channel 10 that night, this is in Sydney, up against the Late Show uh, from 8.30 until midnight, really, uh, there was a double feature of Smoking and the Bandit 2 and Smoking and the Bandit 3. Wow. Gee, had to choose. Yep. Is that the one with Sally Smoking and the Bandit, when was that on? Uh, 8.30 on Channel 10, Smoking and <laughs> the Bandit 2, which had... Uh, Burt Reynolds, Dom DeLuise, and Jackie Gleason, and at ten thirty-five, Smokey and the Bandit three. Isn't that when Smokey is the Bandit, where he's chasing himself? <laughs> no idea. Wow, I'm not across the oeuvre. <laughs> oh, and also on Channel Nine uh, at eight thirty, in lead up to the Late Show, you had uh, Private Benjamin with, yep. <laughs> with Goldie. Goldie Horn joins the army. Yep, and. SBS had Madeline, which mm. doesn't really say much. It's not the cartoon, though. You have... uh, according to the Green Guide here, it's a 1950 British drama based on events in Glasgow in the 1850s when a young woman stood trial after her blackmailer was found murdered. Lots of fun for all the family in that one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Quality television viewing there. And uh, on Channel 7 was the... It looks like, uh, well, you're still the Olympics, really. So from 6.30 at night until whatever time it was. Yeah, that yeah, had a bit one, of everything. One, one more day because the uh, closing ceremony was the next uh, night. Yeah, they had gymnastics, they had the high jump relay finals and, yeah, canoeing. Oh, canoeing. Oh, and water polo. So a bit of everything that night. Just one last thing, because uh, I, I usually like to highlight this as well. Uh, the guests that were on Hey Hey It's Saturday, and it was mostly musical. We had Indecent Obsession. Again, there's been a bit of an obsession with Indecent Obsession in the last couple of episodes. <laughs> uh, we also had Euphoria, Desiree, and Daryl Aberhart. I don't know who he is. I think he's a singer. There is a performance on YouTube if you want to go and check that out. I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I thought you would be. I do have the Euphoria album in my CD collection. What so. was their song? Love you right. Oh, I that's wanna, right. I want to love you right. <laughs> they, had another, they had another one, didn't they? After that, 
Matt. Yeah. <laughs> they had maybe two hits. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think. You, uh, Love You Right might have been 1990, but I don't know what would have been 1992. Well, Euphoria, Love You Right, had in the music clip uh, Simon Baker before he was quite well known. Simon Baker Denny? Yep. Amazing. But Love You Right was 1991, uh, but in 1992 we had oh, One in a Million. Ah, oh, that's it. Oh, yeah. That was an all right one. One in a Million, Do For yeah, I don't, do I for don't you. remember the other two. I remember Do For You and because that was the one where they had, uh, what's your name, the, the brunette in it, just singing la, 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 all the way through it. Karen, that's her name. When you, you YouTube the music clip, you'll know what I mean. Trust me, <laughs> that makes sense when you hear it. When she goes, na 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 na. Okay, so that's that for what's it was. What's up against uh, season one, episode four? Yes. Now let's start season one, episode four, with the opening, which the most controversial opening that they had, which uh, mm. was Rodney King, kind of reenacting what was going on at that time, only for the cameraman to run up to. Uh, quote Rodney King and promoting Asproclear. It's very well done. You know, you, you can't really see the, the join between, you know, the actual yeah. dreadful footage of it and then suddenly, you know, the, the zoom in. It's it the production on that is is very, very well done. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't stand the test of time, this, because we wouldn't sort of tolerate it now, or maybe that's unfair, but I just it just doesn't work. Like it's there's too much um focus on the actual terrible footage i think that's not right that they've shown it and they also show it again almost in full time like the length of it wasn't it when they filmed it and you can hear this little screaming of hay in the background that they mentioned Mm -hmm. it on the best bits of the late show dvd that someone thought it was actually happening yeah oh so they Mm -hmm. recreated the whole thing because it looks real it looked like they just spliced it with real and fake is that the whole thing then as far as I know, I they, think, they I think so. It. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's sort of extraordinary. I mean, yeah, we didn't really get to see this sort of brutality happening like before this video was released. I mean, nowadays it's very de rigueur with smartphone cameras and body cams, but yeah, we just we, we hadn't seen anything so brutal before, and yeah, it was sort of just milked for a, a, a weird gag. Yeah, the actual incident happened on March 3, 1991. And the acquittal happened in 1992, which prompted the LA riots. And the person playing Rodney King in the sketch was uh, Christopher Kirby, who is known later on in the series as the ripoff Graham and uh, and other appearances in the background just as an extra in the show. You may know him in current movies like The Matrix Reloaded, How to Stay Married, he's appeared in that, and Heartbreak High as well as playing Rocky Horror in the new Rocky Horror stage show in 1992-93. Interesting. Christopher Kirby's had this really quite um, incredible sort of trans-Pacific career because he's been in American films and American TV series, but he's also been in things in Australia like The Games and All Saints. So, yeah, he's... He's got an interesting set of credits if you go look him up on IMDb. He permanently relocated to Australia in late 1999. According to the bit of information where I looked it up, which was uh, the Star Wars wiki, which is also known as Wikipedia, um, <laughs> it says that he's best known uh, for, his, for his role as Mitch Hansen on The Saddle Club, <laughs> um, as well as playing Gideon Danu in Revenge of the Sith. Ooh, no memory of that character at all. <laughs> 
best known to international audiences as Mauser from the Matrix trilogy. All right. Well, if you YouTube Australian Rocky Horror Picture Cast, The Time Warp, you'll find the music clip where he is starring prominently in it, along with Gina Riley, Alyssa Jane Cook, Craig McLaughlin, Red Simons, Glenn Butcher, and Mr. Can We Help, Peter Rose Thorne, as Riff Raff, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, good. And Wilbur Wilde. Check that out. It's uh, quite cringeworthy, but quite entertaining at the same time. All right, so we have the opening titles and straight into the opening monologue, Tony and Santo joining Tony for the first time. Yeah. Oh, no, where's, where's Mick? Yeah. <laughs> we it's find this out soon. He doesn't really say anything in this, does he? So I don't know. No, it's, 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 like a, it's a total of only about a dozen or so words, really. Is yeah. this the, the first time? Is this time? the first time we see a Santo double take? It is a thing to behold. Yes. <laughs> It, it, well, could this be the first time as well where Mick starts loosely not showing up for the opening monologue where he disappears a few minutes before the show? Oh, I think he wasn't in it intentionally because he was in the Bruce McAvaney sketch. Of course. Mm. Yeah. Yes. So he had to be in wig and makeup and all that. But it was a very short monologue, wasn't it? It was just a setup for mm. that Kelty joke, Kelty as. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The late show word of the week, Kelty. <laughs> and yeah, Tony roughs up his hair, and um, yeah, we get that double take from Santo who says, Hey, Tony, your hair's looking a bit kilty. And there's also a reference to Danny Minogue as well. So, uh, where Tony has said that, uh, you know, Danny Minogue is coming in to perform her new single, so I'm which she doesn't, obviously, but the way that he said it was taking the Mickey out of us. So, I'm guessing that she was probably doing the rounds promoting whatever song was out in 1992. And it wasn't <laughs> This Is It because this is Shit. it. <laughs> that was 93. That bit early. Yeah. She was doing the rounds and she was also um, famous for wearing the kind of fishnet Eskimo getup, which was featured in the Who magazine, Best and Worst Dressed of 1992, which I actually wrote to Smash Hits magazine about back back. In the day, I told her she looked like an Eskimo in a fishing net and then the whole letter got printed and um, oh, I, oh, I cut nice. a photo out of her as well. So that was, uh, so I, I know all about Danny's whereabouts back in the day and, uh, and her fashion sense or lack thereof. Um, yes, unfortunately, she did not make an appearance on that episode. Yeah. Uh, she's Very iconic. Of her time. <laughs> yeah, I actually, um, years later, I remember when she was on one of those singing shows x factor or something I, I said something like well i apologize to you danny for making fun of your dress sense back then because i think it's improved and and she she liked my comment my tweet so i think all is forgiven for making fun of her back in smash hits in 1992 crisis <laughs> over wow <laughs> <laughs> well straight into the news desk with tommy g and now this is where it there's quick jumps into the stories here so such as the south african fun run off to a violent start where it spices in footage of uh protests basically going on at the time uh, sarajevo resident uh, installs giant mistral fan and they cut away to well they show the footage where it's basically a destroyed wall now i can back this story up because at the time um, there were many mistral fans that were recalled or asked to be destroyed due to a major fire hazard and uh, so I remember having one, my family having one, and mum's gone, all right, take that, out, go out the back and smash it up. I've gone, well, why? It's bloody hot today. And then, 
yeah, it was just to destroy that model of Mistral fan because it was just apparently a fire hazard. And you, you would have couldn't get to... a refund. Oh no, it was about three or four years old when I think about it. I just uh, remember okay. it like being a really like poo brown color. <laughs> uh, all, all all appliances were uh, in the late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, or beige. Beige, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, Belfast parking officers launch a Get Tough campaign and they show footage of leftover remnants of a bomb blast uh, from Sunday, August 2nd, 1992, which was the bed- in Bedford Street, which was quite disturbing. Um, but got to laugh. Uh, the bloody war on Yugoslavia, uh, John Major and George Bush refusing to help. And Tommy says, well, they tried to reach out to Gareth Evans, but he says it was a matter for the family court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll no, call back to last episode. Yes. Gareth Evans uh, was involved in a violent student protest while hopping into a car and cut to uh, the team like Jason with a squeegee on the windscreen. Yeah. There were a lot of student protests sort of early 90s I remember when I got to university mid 90s we were still protesting about no fees for degrees but I think the early 90s was when the government started to try and bring in the fees wasn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and ultimately succeeded this uh yeah, got a really good uh reaction from the audience I think probably first big night uh, laugh of the night now the next bit is Humphrey B. Bear in court due to outstanding payments between them and Channel 9 and Cue to a little bit of a sketch with Jane as the lawyer for Humphrey, and you start cueing the non-talking jokes. <laughs> this is good, actually. Although I think Tommy was right to say that's the shonkiest Humphrey B. Pair I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. Oh, it was really scary. It was not quite right in the face at all. <laughs> yeah, I I think that possibly contributed to the fact that that sketch fell a bit flat with the studio audience. <laughs> yeah, everyone's too busy going, that's not Humphrey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, they might have been going, gee, that's really good acting from Jane. Like it was, it was really, it was quite understated from her. I quite liked it. Yeah. She certainly got all the pedigree. Like she was quite talented at all the acting and musical mm-hmm. stuff. And she wasn't just a journo is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Now also something I noticed um, in the bit of footage where, uh, the Shonky Humphrey is uh, going into court, is that one of the press pack being played by our cast starts off the sentence, is it true that you're a news segment on it and then it cuts out? So I think there might have been a little bit of a meta joke in there. Is it true that you're a news segment on a Australian comedy show? Might have been uh, something the press pack was trying to ask uh, funny fellow Humphrey. I didn't notice that. I might have to go back and watch that. The next story is police involved in the Rodney King incident uh, to stand trial again, uh, and they show footage before and after it's been submitted to Australia's Funniest Home Videos. Yeah. 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 Australia's Funniest Home Videos was never funny. Australia's Funniest Home Videos was never funny, and I never found it funny anyway. Um, This is just not appropriate. I don't even think even back then. No, I don't think it landed back then. Mm. Well, I I think that the joke really, it's not about the actual Rodney King incident. I think it's just more about the nature of home videos. And it's it's, like if if you were to do an Ian McFadgen style intro about this, it would probably be something like, 
you know, like imagine if the Rodney King footage accidentally got sent into Funny Home Videos instead of journalists. It would probably go something like this. Oh, I think it's probably more satire. It's sort of like, you know, bringing to light a terrible story by sort of give, giving it a joke, you know, but it, it, the main point of it is bringing it to light and let's talk about this horrible thing. I think their heart's in the right place. It's just a bit like, oh, no thanks. But then it's better that they do it and not at all, I suppose. I, oh I think God. that joke is, is part of a succession of jokes that that started off this new sketch, you know, the one about the Mistral fan and, and all that, where where they're taking news footage and kind of turning it into a joke. And, you know, back, I, I remember laughing at some of these jokes back in the day and I think these days we have a bit of a different attitude we we sort of we look at it now and go yeah but you know that was people protesting about against apartheid or you know that was because of a war and you and you can't these days we don't disassociate ourselves whereas back then obviously we were just like oh yeah that works as a joke you know and we were prepared to go with it and now we think actually mm, that's a bit mean you know and yeah. I think I think that's probably why even though the Rodney King joke and making it into Australia's Funniest Home Video Show, we know it's not having a go at Rodney King. But but we just go, mm, yeah, but something really bad happened there and we can't laugh at it anymore. So it's just, for the past 30 years, there's been a sort of attitude change in society. Yeah. And also these yeah. days you can't hide from the comments section. Oh, no. Yeah, that as well. No, I mean, all of these jokes, you know, the, the way the chaser got treated about 10, 15 years ago, anytime they did a joke, which was often quite similar line to these sort of gags, and they would just get hammered and hammered for weeks and weeks in the paper, just all this outrage. And and that kind of stuff, it's killed off comedy like this. Mm. The next story is the Chinese boat people are staging a protest in Port Hedland, and um, they were jumping off the detention centre roof. And this is where it's a bit of an awkward joke. Uh, and they, they, lucky they had the yeah, another one. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a sick gag. This one, I just went, yeah, okay, I, I, I see the joke here, but I can't laugh at this. No, it was, and for the people listening, it was uh, they had the Olympic judges uh, there, and they were scoring the jumping. So yeah, quite uh, tasteless these days now. I found this whole news desk segment to be quite awkward and it reminded me that for many many years I just would wander off I wouldn't pay attention to news desk it was sort of either I didn't get it enough like I wasn't smart enough for it or I didn't find it funny or whatever and it rem- like this time around I had to rewind it and rewatch it and try and appreciate it for what it was but I definitely had that moment where my mind would wander and I just wasn't paying attention. Did anyone else feel that way or you're all loving it? (laughs) I had the issues where when the audience didn't laugh and I found it funny or vice versa and it's like, oh, if they didn't laugh, did I miss the joke or, you know, because it would just be on how they decided to cue it up or if the if the audience was still laughing from the previous joke and they didn't give that breathing space, it it does seem that in this episode there seems to be a larger ratio of dumb jokes to smart jokes, if you want to call them that. I, I think the problem with the news desk segment, you know, whether we're watching it now or you were watching it thirty years ago, is that it requires you to know what was in the news that week, and if you watch the news every night, then you would get all of the jokes. 
but you know now I'm I'm really struggling to remember most of this stuff the only thing I really remember is Rodney King mm. you know week's news because that was such a sensational story that ran for many months but yeah if you don't get what it's referring to you've got no idea where the comedy is yeah that's right I think the, the news is particularly stuck in 1992 this week although some of the other news desks which I really did enjoy re-watching it as an older person now like I think that was more iconic news stuff that sort of passed <laughs> through time but this one yeah. was just a bit so with no. the first few episodes, they had the update later on in the show, a news update. Did they continue on with that for a while or did they phase it out? They, maybe they realised that um, they should just cut this down and focus on the beginning of the show rather than update everyone towards the end. I yeah, well, there was an update this week. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a second one this week, but I don't think it lasts for much longer. <laughs> I don't remember there being two lots of news desk for much longer in the late show. Yeah, the next story is the Barcelona Olympics program update with Rob as Bruce McAvaney and Mick as John Walker, hence the reason why Mick wasn't in the opening monologue. And every time John or Mick tried to talk, uh, he kept continuously being cut off by good old McAvaney. Can you yeah, get, get a wordy? <laughs> well, you can try. This is where McAvaney was saying some of the names of Sergei Bubka and Dreschler, you know, saying, uh, imagine if <laughs> Bubka and Dreschler got married, he would pass out. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was later, actually, when he says that. Wasn't it? Oh, or no, was it, it was this one. Yeah. Oh, okay. He, he was in the episode he so many times. Comes times. He, comes, he comes back about six times in this. They'd obviously had yeah. a weird reaction to the sketch the previous week. And in the previous week, he'd also mentioned Heike Dreschler and Sergei Bukta. And, and so he's, he's just kind of basically redoing bits from last week's sketch about six times throughout this program. He just keeps popping up. <laughs> I do like the running jokes, so. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also seeing Mick in that wig as John Walker, it, it reminds me too much of uh, Norm from The Life Beyond. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> I think I think, I think it's also because for for some reason Mick's on a bit of a lean, like to the almost like he's leaning on uh, Rob's shoulder just about. <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's an extraordinary um, wig that uh, Mick's wearing. The next uh, story is the Kerner government under fire for the latest election ad campaign, comparing economies of New Zealand and Victoria. And cue Tony the New Zealander mm-hmm. playing oh. Derek, age twenty eight. Yes. Like I, my best mate at school at the time was also a Kiwi and I remember her sort of loving Tony sort of drawing attention to this sort of kind of really prevalent racism that we had to Kiwis at the time. Like they were all doll bludgers, they're over here, you know, and I think it made me aware that, oh, God, we're awful. I, I guess it's like that thing where an Australian in England experiences that real sort of condescension, kind of casual racism, because it's not exactly racism, but it is. And yeah, I remember it was kind of like, good one, Tony, because he didn't do it in a way that was shouty or whingy. It was just really kind of subtle and got in there, very sharp witted. And yeah, thankfully Tony's accent was not um, Tum and Fall esque. It was uh, much more subtle, thankfully. The next story uh, is Olympian Lisa Onieki uh, claiming her drink was spiked, and uh, Jane as Lisa with the visuals of her drink being spiked. So this was a straight up. 
I could see where this joke was going, but it was kind of falling flat with the audience. It was very pantomime-like, really. This is a really interesting um, news story, actually. Like, at the time, I had this memory of us, none of us believing uh, Lisa Omdiecki that a drink was spiked. And yet, it's exactly the, what the Russians do. They spike people's drinks. They poison people. So maybe it happened. And, you know, she's, maybe that's actually what happened. And I don't know. Did everyone else think that she was making it up at the time? I don't remember her or this incident. or So I have no idea whether, I mean, was she going to win? Was she predicted to win the marathon? Because that would really be the only reason you'd spike someone's drink is if it looked like she was going to win. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe that I, I don't know either. Um, you know, certainly uh, if a drink was spiked, it wouldn't have looked like, it looked like Mountain Dew or, or tropical flavour Barocca that was being swapped for her, uh, for uh, Jane's water in the sketch. <laughs> like an absolute potion <laughs> bubbling over. Well, Lisa did yeah. win first uh, in the 1986 Commonwealth Games and first in the 1990 Games in New Zealand. Yeah, she's been a, a number one winner for quite a bit, so it wouldn't surprise me if she uh, if, if there was a bit of a threat behind her with that one. Yeah, okay. So she won she won the women's marathon at the nineteen eighty eight Seoul Olympic. No, sorry, she came she got the silver medal at Seoul. Yep. And she yep. won the gold medal at the Edinburgh and Auckland Commonwealth Games. So I guess she was really in with the chance to win at Barcelona. And so that that would give people a motivation to spike her drink, it, like in because this was pre the Tonya Harding kind of nobbling of um, yeah. Nancy Kerrigan. So it, we didn't quite believe that this was a thing. I think we thought that everything was sportsmanlike and all above board. But maybe this was real. Maybe she really was put out of yeah. action. Yeah. What says so according to Wikipedia, she was one of the gold medal favourites for the Barcelona Marathon and mm. she, she was the failed to finish in the world in 1992. So, yeah, it looked like she was in with a really good chance. So, yeah, if someone else wanted to take her down, that was how to do it. And, mm. if, you, and if you know more about Lisa Onyeki, feel free to reach out to us at <laughs> champagnelateshow at gmail.com or send us a tweet, uh, TLS Champagne. Or uh, call now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. On 7171717. All right. <laughs> That wouldn't be a sports story with, uh, you know, Bruce McAvaney popping up again, a.k.a. Rob. Saying he's got so much more to say. Yeah. And the last story of the news desk was the Queen Mother turning 92. Yeah, with the the little girl holding a sign saying, die, you old bag. (laughs) And as harsh as that is, I have to say, I really laughed. Yeah, this is one of my favourites gags actually because it is just really funny and and again they fake it so well mm. yeah <laughs> but if they if they attempted that gag nowadays they would get dragged over the coals for it no doubt oh yeah yeah Hello, yeah but by royalists i i think non-royalists would probably find this a hoot well i don't know where i am but i still found it funny yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think you're right, Daniel. I think this would probably be a kind of culture wars type newspaper column topic if it was mm. done today. But a lot of people would find it hilarious. And also I love the way it's just slipped in, you know. It's just a quick one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, similar, similar to the Rodney King stuff, it's just it's, it's very gratuitous, really. 
It's a weak target, yeah. And so the next uh, sketch is Barry and Jeff Shout of Shout Motors. This was one of my favourite bits because I, I must have taped this episode. I remember this episode really, really strongly and I think there are so many segments in it that are like best bits, you know. And this was one of my favourite segments for umpteen years. I just loved it. And I'm not really quite sure why. It's pretty simple, but I think it's just the insane, like, positions of Rob and Mick in the car yard. Like, sometimes one of them's in front of the car and one of them's at the back, and then they swap, and then all of a sudden Jane comes in and she's virtually just corpsing on camera. Like, it's just a classic Weren't cars terrible back then? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They were so boxy. But, yeah, you're right, Prue. They really, really get the way the ads like that were made because all these kind of local car dealer ads, they were all shot like that, and they they play up the the sort of the style brilliantly in this. It took me back to there was these old commercials uh, that ran in Sydney for, like, 70s, 80s, 90s, but I remember from the 90s, and it was Tony Packard from Tony Packard Holden, just up Windsor Road from Balcombe Hills and let me do it right for you, but he's always yelling at the screen. Let me do it right Right for for you. you. I remember that. (laughs) And there was Dominelli Ford. Yeah. That had a jingle to it, I think, so. Yeah, car salesmen were so desperate in the 90s. Remember that guy with the big pencil? Did you get that ad? Oh, maybe it was a Melbourne ad, but it was insane. I think I think we, we get to see it a bit later on in the uh, commercial oh, yeah. crime stop is that one. <laughs> oh, the drive yeah. prop, dude, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we had to endure about a decade of ads by Bob Moran. Um, my apologies <laughs> yeah. if I just... Bob, 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 Bob. Oh, Moran. no. <laughs> do, not, do not get this into people's heads, Daniel. But, Yeah. <laughs> Bob Moran, wherever he is. I also like that they managed to slip into the sketch the phrase, don't you white, don't you white folk listen? <laughs> really? I missed that. <laughs> what is that a reference to? Does anybody remember what that's from? Oh. No. No. That was uh, ads for Campbell's Cash and Carry starring oh. Delilah. Why, why, why Delilah? Remember the, the, the yeah, black yeah. one? Yeah. Why, why, why Delilah? I don't think it was a national ad, but... Um, I remember no, no. that. Well, yeah, that was in I Sydney. Am. Yeah. I was just um, spellbound by the glory of Rob's wig in the, that sketch. Oh, <laughs> it's, yeah. an, it's an absolute banger. The next sketch being uh, Tony and Mick visiting shops with zany names. Now, this is a major favourite for all Late Show fans. Yeah, feel free to, to discuss away, starting with the bot bloke. How great was he? He was, su- he was such a good sport too. Like, they just started... Coming into his shop, and he was—he really went with it. I love that clock on the wall. It was so eighties. That giant oh, watch. Oh, that was so distracting. <laughs> I had a Garfield one like that. I think it was a really popular thing to have a giant watch on your wall. And, and the jumper worn by the nut bloke. You know, I, I <laughs> the bear <barrel> jumper. Yeah. <laughs> guys with mullets who who had the tight jeans and that jumper, and and there he is. <laughs> yep. And. Yeah. The Killing Fields as well. With Oh, that's for the Dashboard Doctor a bit later on. Well, I, I skipped too far with that one <laughs> because straight after they visit the Bolt Bloke, our El Faro's travel agency. Yeah, what a glorious um, place. I'm I'm sad that Tony isn't with us because I am I know that that place was near him, I think, where he lived and he would actually go in and see it. I'm pretty sure he's told <laughs> us that story before. 
I'm I'm just amazed that El Faro's uh, said yes to them filming in the in the travel agency. I mean, they they must have had to get permission. But did you notice they had like twenty foot ceilings or something? Like, I guess if you had a building like that, you'd you'd go in and go, well, what am I going to do with this wall? I know, Egypt. <laughs> Paint a sphinx. I was going to say, I wonder how much room was in the trunk store that they visited, the red trunk store. That is just classic Martin Malloy, isn't it, that moment? It's like, oh, have you got something like a big red trunk? <laughs> yes, yes, I do, just here. I'll take Such 50. a wonderful visual gag. Now, I, I remember on the forums there was quite a discussion about where these places are now and whether they still exist. I believe there's still a dashboard doctor uh, Bolt Bloke is now a, still a, a, related to a Coventry Fasteners. They also sell nuts and bolts. So I'm not sure if that's still around, but um, there was some discussion, uh, some uh, forum member uh, mentioning that the Bolt Bloke logo had changed by 1998. It used to be an anthropomorphic bolt figure and it had changed to be replaced by an abstract looking symbol. So uh, unfortunately the Bolt Bloke didn't last very long. That's a tragedy, oh. yeah. But I can say that um, Job Warehouse is still there. I was talking about that with some friends today, and um, well, they're not operating, are they? It's the buildings there. No, no, they're not. It's not a business that's operating, but the building is still there because it's yeah. like one of Melbourne's oldest buildings. So I guess they can't knock it down. Oh, the amount of times that the. Facebook uh, Late Show page and Twitter and all like keep getting you know oh look I'm out front of Job Warehouse you know there's all there's always an article on it anything that's like a Melbourne cliche it is in fact now a Melbourne cliche that uh, I get links from Herald Sun or anything and there's always an image of Job Warehouse located in it yeah it should be yeah. on the on the tourist trail for anyone visiting Melbourne yeah. it, Just, it should be looked after by the National Trust Job Warehouse yeah. yeah it, it's that important, and the busted shavers should be, you know, conserved by experts. <laughs> Apparently, like all the um, fabric when they cleared it out was just all mouldy. Oh. Remember, someone oh. I don't know if it was on the forum or whether it was someone who told the story, and it was repeated on the Two Tones show on Triple R. But somebody said that they'd seen a woman like wet herself, and it went all over this fabric. And the shop owners just like mopped it up with the fabric, kicked it into a corner, and then a week later they could be seen selling that fabric. Like wow. it, was, it was a very insane place, and you weren't allowed to touch anything. They were really quite strict. I know quite a lot of people who like you know do design and stuff like that that will go there because they had such an amazing array of fabrics. Well, according <laughs> to on the forum, wow, I'm dusting this one off. The username Nick AMC, Nick and Mick or someone, uh, said that Job Warehouse had officially shut up shop as of October 2012. He used to work next door at the Play DVD and Music. And there's some incredible stories about the history of that place. Apparently, the family that owns it uh, owns most of the buildings on that end of Burke Street and has... <laughs> oh, this is all allegedly. Um, allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> No, is, that, is that like a oh, it's a wonderful place. place. Wonderful place. <laughs> I should read that first before I say anything out loud. Ah, uh, <laughs> yes. And here we go here. And apparently foolhardy cousin George has says, according to the report of the Sunday Herald Sun, the Job Warehouse is on a list of unused buildings in Melbourne that are in need of a makeover. The list was compiled by the Lord Mayor, Miss Sally Cap. Of Job Warehouse, the article 
described, once colourful fabric shops windows now boarded up. What was meant to be meant by colourful could mean anything. And uh, but there, are, and this is dating back to 2018. Apparently, there were plans to restore Job Warehouse to its former glory. Yeah, my but former you know, this... glory. You mean putting the busted shavers in the window? I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and the handwritten sign that says "Cashmere now available." Yes. Yeah, this is a, such a wonderful piece, isn't it? It's like Tony and Mick make this look really simple but it's not like they've clearly planned it out and scoped it out. You know, they've got a lot of experience about these shops. They've either seen them or someone's told them about them and then they've gone there and they've written the material. And then on one filming day, because they, I'm assuming it was one day because their clothes don't change. So it looks like one day they've just gone around and filmed it and done it all. And it's just like, wow, that must've taken a really long time to prepare but they just make it look really simple, like anyone could do it. Anyone could get in their car with a little video camera and go and film this amazing stuff. Yeah, how else would they have known about the Nietzsche Hair Studio unless it didn't even exist? Does it exist anymore? That's actually a good point. Well, we certainly, we, we certainly know that they didn't like, uh, didn't want Mick and Tony to be anywhere near the place. Yeah, because they had to film it across the road, didn't they? And just do a really quick gag. you got to prove that it exists. Yeah. Uh, yep. And they won't. They won't do your hair unless you can prove it exists. Yeah. Yeah. And also, not to forget stacks of slacks. Yeah. Max Gillies has been in. Yes. <laughs> Max has come yeah. down to stacks of slacks to get some dacks <laughs> that are actually on racks. <laughs> We've missed a, a few other points of interest on the the tour, like the dashboard doctor, who were very um, accommodating uh, in letting them borrow a Mazda three hundred and twenty three dashboard, and it didn't um, have any private cover. we also had i think this might have been improvised because they just walked past a sign that says padre pio's day um which uh padre pio's day is on the 23rd of september for uh, anybody um uh, well you would have just missed it as of uh date of recording oh if you look on the facebook page of the late show someone has posted that so oh good whenever we forget we are always reminded by a fan person Padre Pio uh, lived from 1887 to 1968. Um, he became famous for exhibiting stigmata for most of his life, thereby generating much interest and controversy. He was beatified in 1999 and uh, canada- canonized, turned into a saint, in 2002, both by Pope John Paul II. All right, and here we go. Credit for this year's yearly reminder from Shane Hero. Happy Padre Pio's Day, everyone. Pray, hope, and keep your pants on. they use the same picture of obi-wan kenobi yep (laughs) that was that that got a great laugh from uh uh, that line from tony as well yeah all right so the next segment is tony hosting or presenting the the disheveled gentleman with santo as enrico violetta what a classic this was i could not stop laughing when i saw tommy g coming out in that crop top and tracky dacks this little pot belly It's and try and try and try to hold them up because it looked like they were about to fall down any second. <laughs> so this was clothing for the badly dressed man about town, and we had a parade of uh, late show folk. Um, it was very interesting. Yes, hmm. no middle button for Jason's shirt, and complimentary sweat stains. It got a great little uh, from the audience. Did you notice 
the distinct tune that they played during this segment? Oh, yes. Water sports? Yep. <laughs> AKA the um, uh, Champagne Edition DVD menu music. One of the most iconic KPM pieces of tracks right there. And it works so well in this context too. The only thing, um, when Jane comes out as a slovenly tart, <laughs> like it's funny, that's fine, but it was a real reminder to me because, you know, her bra stra- it's about her bra strap showing and having a visible panty line. It was a reminder to me of what crap that was in the 90s for us women. It was like, mm. well, who cares if your bra strap's showing or your undies can be seen through your pants? Like, good Lord, I'm so glad that's in the past. Well, yeah. having your bra strap showing is is sort of fashionable now, isn't it? You know, I mean, visible panty line is still, is still not fashionable and that's why women, a lot of women anyway, wear G-strings. But, like, you know, showing your bra strap, which at that time... Well, certainly my mother's generation regarded that as a bad thing and, and a sign that you were a slattern, right? <laughs> yeah. No one cares. <laughs> no. But I, it was a sort of a flag to me that it was like, oh, thank God Judith Lucy joins later on because it's like that sort of thing needs to be called out, you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah. shit, you know? Mm. Yeah. I still appreciate that it's funny, though. That's fine. <laughs> I also like that um, Santo, as Enrico, is holding a clipboard, which obviously has a script on it. <laughs> <laughs> you, see, you see that occasionally throughout the series. The catchphrase of the disheveled gentleman is, where good fashion is not just a promise, it's an impossibility. <laughs> that certainly is a shabby look. <laughs> and, and big shout out to some of these celebrity customers senator robert ray and graham richardson <laughs> and, uh, and and bart cummings yes and bart cummings, yeah. <laughs> and now we move on to the abc programming and the songs of the highlands with hamish cart mime for nuts mcmurhead as with tommy g playing the character that kind of fell flat yeah I, I- not, I quite like this actually. Yeah, I, I like it. I like the way that Tom Gleisner kind of dances sarcastically, if, if sort of you know walk, walks up the Highlands in a, in a really kind of sarcastic, awkward way. I, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I quite like that bit. And also, does anyone remember that bit on the old DGen where there was this running gag about the the Irish band and they would just go roving, 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 I remember making it into full frontal as well, early full frontal. Really? Yeah, Uh, that gag was in it, yeah. So the next part is a commercial or a parody of the Monopoly game Monotony. (laughs) Three, (laughs) one, two, three. I don't know. I found this funny, maybe because I was just playing a board game with my daughter, Game of Life, which seemed to go on and on forever. But uh, Monotony obviously playing Monopoly. It, you basically have the six sides of the dice and they all say three and it's uh, hours and hours of endless tedium. And there's one funny bit. They always have these funny jokes about the main event and how you have yes. to endure watching that. So I think that was yeah. worthy, one of the action cards that you get. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, turn on the telly and watch the main event. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now, it turns out that this sketch monotony is based on a radio sketch they did If you go to, um, there's an account on Twitter called uh, at classic underscore DGen, which each evening tweets out uh, a a sketch from 
the Triple M DGEN Breakfast Show, all lovingly recovered from uh, a box of tapes. Uh, I don't know whether that's associated with anybody to do with um, no. champagne comedy or not. Nope, got nothing to do with that that I know of. So a big hello, shout out to them. But yeah, about a week ago, roughly, um, was uh, yeah this very sketch. Um, yeah, monotony. Um, and yeah, pretty much similar to the TV version. I think the TV version has a bit more in terms of the visuals. I mean, if you have a look at the, the monotony board, it's just blank and grey and boring looking. Well, the next segment being muckraking, and this is where the soundbite comes in from the teaser. If you subscribe, you would have heard this earlier. <laughs> oh, well, there's no I more really want to hear more. I really want to hear more. <laughs> no. Lately, I've just been hearing that bit. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's the first bit of the Hey Dad theme song. Somebody tweeted, um, oh, I don't have the credit, I'm sorry, but somebody tweeted this amazing thing where they just kept repeating those few bars and yeah. it was like, hey, Dad, that never reaches a conclusion. <laughs> it was like the most <laughs> torturous thing. <laughs> yeah. Was it, I think Tony might have retweeted oh, that. Oh, he must have, yeah. Yeah. So muckraking was all about Hey, Dad, and uh, how it was dropped. It all started with it being removed from the programming due to the Olympics, which is quite normal, uh, but it doesn't give them enough jokes to milk for the late show really so uh but this is where they uh, you know shine a light on the little fake kid <laughs> some appreciation goes out to matthew crock who i'm trying to get onto the podcast by the way so matthew if you're listening please contact us we'd love to have you on what they're trying to do is because hey dad's not on tv they're trying to give out their copies of vhs tapes of hey dad to the community to keep people actively <laughs> viewing <laughs> Oh, I love the way this joke kept escalating. Like it mm. started with a handout on the street, <laughs> and and then then they were throwing tapes at people's houses from a moving car, and then they were dropping them from a helicopter. <laughs> it's like, oh no! Imagine, imagine if you were in some war torn region because a lot of stuff was happening around the world, and this, oh, here's some food. Oh no, it's just hey, dad tapes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that. Actually, Mick Malloy's actual Holden special before he lost his license, um, dri- driving around distributing the tapes in Melbourne. So that that's nice to see that. that that's like early days of Torrance, really. It's uh, the manual version of Torrance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. If we if we still had tapes, we we would be doing that sort of thing. We've we've got a lot of feedback uh, from uh, listeners to the podcast asking, you know, like where can we go to see the episodes? And unfortunately, apart from you know, bits here and there on YouTube. There's not much we can really do about that, unfortunately. If we could um, airdrop videotapes uh, of the late show, we definitely would. <laughs> and so when Hey Dad re- was returning uh, or he had left just before or they decided not to bring him back, if it was a season ending or something like that, but Nudge left the show. Mm-hmm. Christopher Truswell. Yeah, yeah, apparently so, yeah. he departed after the conclusion of season five, according to Wikipedia, with no explanation given in the show's story to explain his disappearance. So basically a little fat kid just takes his place and he's the new guy. Well, yeah. I'm sorry to take the uh, con- conversation down this road, but wasn't he also really great in supporting um, Simone Buchanan when she came out about her awful story about Robert Hughes? 
I believe they I all remember were. that. Yeah. Yeah. Nudge leaving is probably not the most controversial thing out of Hey Dad now. No. <laughs> unfortunately. Throughout the muckraking, they were trying to do the nudge-a-thon, trying to bring back nudge. Yeah, when they crossed to Tony, Tony was in the telecommunications room and all he got was two wrong numbers and someone ordering a pizza. Hosting <laughs> a, a nudge-a-thon. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. the line, we're totally nudgeless. <laughs> yeah, so remember telethons back in the day. They'd go on for about 24 hours and you'd have celebs manning the phones and trying to get your donations. And here we have Bruce making an appearance. Yep. It's yep. Six, uh, $600. Um, double it if you shut up. And he's like, no, well, I guess it just have to be $600 <laughs> then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a great gag. The other one I like is uh, there was a $100 pledge from John English, uh, who was in, I suppose, Hey Dad's biggest rival, All Together Now. I loved All Together Now. That's in a league of its own. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing comes easy. All Together Now. <laughs> yes. So that's what another addictive and very catchy theme song, isn't it? Yeah. One and that... let's not sing it now. No. No. <laughs> All right. So a quick little uh, recorded sketch. Uh, and now this one, the joke gets lost on the audience because it was just too quick. You're still laughing over Bruce McAvaney. Barcelona 1992 promo uh, Olympics, the Mormon pursuit team. And it just. Yeah, I missed yeah. it. I didn't yeah. know. Don't even remember that. LinkedIn was gone. That was it. So there you go. 28 years later, now it gets a mention. The next segment is, uh, this is a quick one. Now, I've actually got this little setup, which I'll play for you a bit later. Um, now, Tom and Jang make a, a UN slash Club Med joke right there. <laughs> and you just got to love what Jane says to Tom. All right. Uh, I've it didn't it work in rehearsal and yeah, um, that's right. it didn't work now. <laughs> yeah. So this segment was pretty much um, taking the piss making a mockery out of the Mr. Sounds from Hey Hey It's Saturday, Murray Trigoning, which they had, quote, Peter, the audio guy, trying to give Murray a run for his money. And so Tom will just throw to Peter to say, hey, quick, play uh, a sound grab of, you know, an elephant, you know, in three, two, one, which what Daryl would do with Murray. I'll just throw a random bit of audio out there and see what Murray could bring up on these cart machines. It wasn't digital at the time. It was all on cassette tapes. I know, really really old school. Yeah, very, very old school. Now, I actually uh, sent a little snippet of this to, well, not Murray directly, but I got Danny Tregoning, who is the daughter of Murray. And ah. Yes, so uh, who also runs a Eurovision podcast, and this is what she had to say about this one sketch. Wow, that episode had Everything from stacks of slacks to Graham and the Colonel and even poor Peter, the sound engineer. Well, it's always good to know that an elephant can always be at the door. That was a magnificent episode looking back at comedy at its finest. Wow, what a pro. Yeah, some great praise. Yes. So, and uh, Danny also mentioned that Murray idolised, loved the D-Gen. So anything, any time that they poked fun at him, he absolutely adored. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's good to know that he took it well. Oh, indeed, yeah. i got nothing. I didn't Have you got a sound that goes a bit like this? It goes, mud. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I'll, I'll get that for the next episode. Okay, so the next segment is, oh, damn, yeah. 
I really should have got it for this one, shouldn't I? Yeah, <laughs> the olden days. Episode four, Stupid Hat Day. With Cookie from a Country Practice. Yep, we have that baker's hat, the chef's hat. Bring forth the headwear and they all have to queue up and they get their hats rated. There's one guy who refuses to wear a hat in this episode and then gets pursued by the cops and there's the Benny Hill music. It reminds mm. me of those mask denial protest people in Melbourne. There was a clip around going around Twitter the other day where they had they had the cops pursuing these guys to the Benny Hill theme yeah. song. <laughs> that was great. Uh, and we had the guy that thought it was stupid sideburns day and uh, unfortunately had to give himself a wedgie. <laughs> that was so funny. Was he and... the one that said that he was, you know, Jesus fucking Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, well suited to whatever was actually being dubbed over. It just, it, it, it made the episode for me. And also, this is a classic episode where um, Santo is saying, big tits, small dicks, <laughs> and, and sadly, puffy blokes in military uniforms. But and yeah, the guy, the, the, guy, the guy next to him looks down. Yeah, which I know, which I remember from the the period of uh, get this that that was Ed Cavalier's favorite gag in, uh, well, either in the series or it's also in the the trailer for uh, for the olden days video as well. Wasn't that the one where Ed was pointing out that bit where he looked down and when he was telling Tony and Santo that they had no idea and it was just a pure coincidence that he looked down. <laughs> yeah, it's like we had no idea that that actually happened. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. The next segment being Tony admitting that he's a New Zealander. And, uh, uh, this, yeah, this is a bit more of a New Zealand bashing, really, saying that he needs to get to the yeah. door first, have sex with sheep, and have fush and chops with his mate Tom Fun. And there's a little bit of booing and even a bleat from one audience member as well. Good on you, idiot, in the audience. Yep. Yeah, but it was very prevalent at the time. That was sort of the thing. We were very casual about that, but it was... Pretty shit. Yeah, it was all about the anti-discrimination bill being debated in Parliament. And uh, someone who is sick of stereotypes is Mr. Luigi Spaghetti in the Q Santo doing the stereotype. Oh, he's so funny when he does these characters. Yeah. yeah. He really throws Sorry. himself into coming out there dancing with the piano accordion and garlic all around him. And the white suit, the comedy Italian accent, and yeah, mentioning the mafia. Yeah. yeah. You can, you know, like tick, 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 Italian stereotype. Yeah. And then there's the end line when he takes off the moustache and then says, well, Santo's allowed to do that because he is, insert offensive word here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that just, that just, um, I think that made the joke all that more funny to me. Maybe it won't work as much nowadays, but you could see. It was, it was Santo doing it, so. Yeah. Santo essentially taking the piss out of his own yeah. background, really, which, and I mean, that, even now, I would say he would be allowed to do. Yeah, saying, that, hey, I, I'm the person of this nationality. I can make fun of my nationality because I am that nationality. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice, yeah, get out of jail clause, I suppose. All right, so the next quick little bumper promo sketch bit, which is Barcelona 92 promo again, and this is the paper by pursuit, which... Yeah, again. Which went just as well as the Mormon Pursuit team. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I also missed this one. <laughs> and with good cause. All right, so now with the next bit being the spotlight on the backing singer in a rock band sketch, which uh, has Rob, Jane and Jason perform a song about background singers. 
as backup dancers and singers. There's a classic move in this where they go, and then we do this with our heads, which is a visual gag. Yeah, and they're all nodding along, and it's like something that they always cut up and put over the credits. You'd see it for, you know, umpteen times, and it was just so good visually. Something I like about this is that Jane is the only one who's doing her own singing in this. I mean, obviously they're miming to a pre-recorded track, but mine's, uh, Jane's actually miming to herself. So I've, I've, I've always appreciated that uh, with her, that whenever you see her singing, it's usually 99% of the time her. I'm also um, impressed with uh, the wig that Jane's wearing, which it looks like a larger version of um, mixed John Walker wig from earlier. <laughs> it just keeps growing and growing. She's got a magnificent bouffant of Effie-sized proportions. Mm. Uh, yeah. Did not do any favours for the ozone layer of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have the next sketch, which is Shit Scared and the World Speed Skiing Record. Now, this is not featured on any of the DVDs, so if you're listening to this and you think, well, I don't remember that one, it's on YouTube somewhere. But it's uh, Rob practising skiing. Uh, with Mick and Toe and so he practices on the top of a car and which ends up him being led through a Macca's drive-through. Yeah I love this shit scared. Look at paper my name out and put my name in there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I like the, the car drives into the garage with with Rob still on top of it that <laughs> that's nicely done. But but also the fact that they can be bothered to drive all the way up to the snow to film this sketch. Now, here's the thing. Where was it filmed in the snow? Was it at Perisher? Was it at Mount Buller? Smiggins they Hall? actually used to go to Buller a lot for the radio. They, they would frequently do, um, you know, outside broadcasts there every snow season. Bit of a junket, probably. Well, because of the building that uh, Rob smashes into had the old Channel 7 logo on it, I'm thinking it's probably Mount Buller where they would do a lot of uh, televised events. And also, I think they've got... Um, family connections to Mansfield, which is sort of the nearest town. I, I don't know whether it was Tommy G or Rob or whatever, but I, I think they might have talked about that in a river somewhere. Or maybe I just knew it from an article. I don't know. But, yeah, that's the nearest place, Mount Buller. And the song used in Shit Skirt was uh, the, another KPM library track, which is uh, Hit and Run by Ralph Dollymore, which I believe uh, we covered in the previous episode too. So that ends up being an ongoing theme song for Shit Scared. I love the um, stunt car. It's got a fan and uh, bucket <laughs> seats. <laughs> it's, it's a specially modified Camry. And also this is the uh, moment where I absolutely knew that I was in love with Rob Sitch when, um, when Mick needs his zip done up on his parker. <laughs> and Rob's oh, like, yeah. he's just like oh, little put your arms up. <laughs> The other funny bit is when um, they're going through the Macca's drive-through and Rob's on the top of the car on skis, which is insane. <laughs> and he sort of leans down to the drive-through window and asks for some food. And Mickey goes, "You know the rules, Robbie. You got to wait till you get home." <laughs> and that definitely would have been an interesting day for the Macca's worker. Obviously <laughs> impromptu. Yeah, the look on her face is like this <laughs> real. Really, I have not been briefed. <laughs> Imagine you get home for the day. Oh, how was your day from work? Oh, not too bad, though. Someone was on the roof through the drive-thru on skis. But, yeah, other than that, it was a pretty good day. And, yeah, that, that probably wasn't the weirdest thing that ever happened to that McDonald's worker. So. No, it was probably just another day in paradise. 
the other uh, line I like is uh, just at the end after Rob has uh, crashed um, after trying to break the world speed skiing record. Nick asked Robbie, did you break the record? And he, uh, Rob replies, uh, no, I broke my collarbone. <laughs> but still yeah. has enough energy to smack him on the head. <laughs> the next segment being commercial crime stoppers. And uh, you have the sportsmen selling products this time with uh, Mr. Football Ted Witten promoting Motorola mobile phones for communications brokers. And you know that he's got it because they mean, mean business. business. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do also like how they... Um, how they uh, point out uh, the first two words that uh, Ted says in the ad, which is a little bit yeah, discriminatory. Hey, fellas. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> we women probably didn't want to want carry around those bricks. Well, if they do, they want it small and pink. Yeah, yeah. Time was, was not going to happen for another pen. 10 years. <laughs> the lady pen. Was it, wasn't it about 10 years ago? The lady <laughs> pen was introduced that was, that was tinier and pink. Anyway. <laughs> how's the next ad with the big ears oh my god oh, yeah yeah what what the hell was that and and also like the reaction to that was i bet you know santo and mick wanted to get some of the big ears to wear mm. on, on the commercial <laughs> and obviously the abc props department couldn't find any or make any in time which is a shame but I was surprised that the ad came from victorian savings and loan it sounds legit but I've never heard of it. Does anyone know what that is? Well, it was sent it from somebody in, in Ballarat. So it's it's your, your classic case of the, the regional local commercial. Oh, yeah. This, you know, like this, this sort of thing probably would have been, you know, airing on what would have been Channel 6, Channel 8. Oh. You know, uh, you know one, of, one of those things in the days before, agri- oh, yeah, before aggregation. When there was a, when there was just the one commercial channel in each yeah, town, win. there was a different channel in Ballarat. If you ever stayed there, which which we did a couple of times in my childhood, they had a different channel. We have Victorian Savings and Loan Society, uh, while not in financial difficulty, is to be taken over by St George Building Society. So mm. yeah, now That's owned by West. Pretty Coast. much like all of them these days, they yeah just get mm. taken over. Yeah. So, I was obviously, wondering they, if it was obviously they didn't listen good if they were taken over by St George. Oh, hold yeah. on. There we go. <laughs> there we go. And also their last commercial was the NEC mobile product and uh, a weird casting of Swan Lake. Yeah, always great to get a kind of ballet dancer's dick joke in when you're plugging <laughs> mobile phones, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Now the mobile phones are so small, you can't make this kind of ad. And be flattering to these guys. <laughs> and they're cod pieces. Yep. <laughs> I've got to point out that with this commercial crime stoppers segment, there's not much, there's not many jokes in this. I mean, if you look at their witty rejoinders to each ad, um, they say to Mr. Football, you're an idiot. They say to the big ears, bank people, well, listen to this, your ad sucks. And they say to the ballet dancers, you know, tell your friends if you've got any. Like I'm starting to, I, I'm I'm starting to see a little bit where um, Mr. Oliver was uh, getting at with his uh, review earlier. Like there's not there's not many jokes. It's just pretty much these ads suck. Good night. Maybe it that's all funny, I needed. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really have that anywhere else on the TV at the time. Like it was ridiculous television, and somebody needed to sort of point it out. 
It was, it was like a local version of Clive James in a way. I think, you know, in, with commercial crime solvers, the ads are the joke and yeah. really just the linking device. So, yeah. you know, may, maybe, maybe Mr. Oliver wanted a bit more, but I suspect he also wanted some rubbish variety acts. So, <laughs> yeah. too bad. Well, wrong, wrong. Uh, sp- speaking of rubbish variety acts... Ah, yes, here they come, everyone. The first this toilet is break. What Ross Warnicky asked for in after the first week. He wanted some variety, and here it is. Yes. Yeah. The first toilet break with the Natural Seven performing Irving Berlin's Heat Wave. Yeah. <laughs> I have a confession to make, yeah. everyone. Um, I worked with one of the Natural Seven. Ooh. There was a guy, the guy, the tallest guy in it, who was wearing some daggy like sports short, shorts in this one. <laughs> his name was Mac. Yeah, and he was the one. And later on in the series, he actually appears in the audience dressed in seventies daggy clothes, like that's the joke. And uh, he was really great. It was a really bad um, restaurant that I, I was at. It was like a themed restaurant, and he was like the DJ, and he would get people to come out and dress up as Tom Cruise in risky business and do the underpants dance, you know, that kind of thing. But he was a real pro. So, and obviously a good sport to come in and be part of the gag later on. Was he the bloke who was wearing the sort of the black short shorts that were also, as well as being really short, they were also really baggy and like really high. Because they they were quite an extraordinary pair of shorts. Also, the location is interesting. I guess you guys don't know, but it looks like a like the old um, mansion called Ripon Lee, where there's this pool that was built like in more modern times, like 1920s or something. And in the shot, the pool looks really fancy, like somebody's cleaned it and everything. But all the architecture looks really quite sort of, you know, Victorian kind of stuff. So I just wondered if it was Ripon Lee, but I guess we'll never know. Well, if that is, that's the same mansion that gets used later on when Tony is the showbiz arsehole for a future sketch. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I do believe, oh. and I could, I, please I, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that the same mansion as well that John Clark uses for Burke's Backyard? Oh, yeah, where he walks across <laughs> the, the <Yeah>. trampoline. <laughs> Get the trampoline. Yeah, where Rod, sorry, where Rob and Santo, they get a tour with uh, John Clark around the house because he's the celebrity gardener. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is that on YouTube? <laughs> I believe it was at one stage. It still might be. But yeah, either way, uh, I'm sure that if you dig hard enough, it'll pop up there somewhere at some stage, if not. Because, of course, Ripon Lee is right next to the Elstonwick studio or the old ABC studios there. So you could have just popped in and filmed some kids yeah. having fun around the pool. <laughs> I, I, love the bit, I, I love the bit where the women who are wearing those big dresses, they disappear and then they come out in the tiniest bikinis I've ever seen. Yeah, but, but what hot bodies they, those ladies had. Oh, my God. I mean, they're, they're very they're very slim nice looking ladies but you know again that just shows you I mean would would that happen these days in choreography would the women basically just slip you know <laughs> get all the gear off while the guys are fully clothed I don't know does well, anyone know the history of the natural seven like what show was it on was it it was an ABC variety show called the, the Saturday show was it because I remember fast oh, forward yeah. 
remember Gina Riley? Uh, yeah. Gina Riley would get the piss out of um, the Saturday Show. I think it was that. It was full of chiffon and crazy antics. That's it. Maybe that's the inside joke that um, they're bringing back variety because all these bloody critics were telling them to bring back variety. Yeah. Well, yeah. Here's- I mean. Oh, ostensibly, yeah, I, I think that the toilet break is in um, is in response to Warnicke and Oliver saying it needs variety. I also like Tony's rationale that, well, Benny Hill had the ladybirds uh, in <laughs> yeah. his show to you know to throw to, and like, I can I can think of many other programs which would have had that sort of, you know, technically not a toilet break, but yeah, just that sort of, oh, the two that you don't have to worry about. Yeah, the, the two Ronnies, for example, had that. And um, Spike Milligan's TV series Q also had a, a musical interlude. So it was very common back then for that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Morkman Wise had uh, had uh, Kenny What's-His-Name and the Jazz Man. And uh, like, the Goon Show had a couple of musical interludes as well as sort yeah. of a, 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 another point where I would um, phase out. Well, here we go. I just found some information while you guys were talking. Uh, thanks to televisionau.com. The Saturday show was a weekly variety show on the ABC in the late 70s and early 80s with a cast of regular performers, including Michael Cole, Daryl Stewart, former Young Talent Time member Jane Scully, and the dance troupe The Natural Seven. And the Saturday Yay. show was produced in a different vein to variety shows on commercial television in that featured traditional music for, musical variety rather than more... Comp, um, on, yeah, contemporary acts, that's it. And one other thing, if you go to ripponleyestate.com.au slash history, there is a photo, a black and white photo of the pool set, which does make it look like that they may have filmed it in Ripponley. Nice. Good sleuthing. Yes. Yeah, you've just reminded me that Kenny Everett used to have the solid gold dancers. I think they win. <laughs> they were the best <laughs> of the genre. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, just 90 seconds of pure schmaltz with um, the sound effect of a toilet flashing and running footsteps at the 10 seconds to go, Mark. Cool, and then straight into the news desk, which uh, is an update with... Now, here's a few quick image ones, really. George Bush back on campaign trail. Uh, Rob, Mick and Jason hand him a soiled rag. Again, well well spliced in. Yep, police searching for murdered Victorian greengrocer and ask why it couldn't have been this guy and they cut to con the fruiterer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now this one, I had to, I can't pronounce this properly. Uh, Parasikiv, it's a Greek name. Greek <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know Come what? on, Matt. Parasik- I had to actually research his name and I didn't write it out phonetically. Parasikivi, Parasikivi Patugli, do, you know, never mind. <laughs> they win gold. El, and... El, 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 Elmer Lovelu. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or they are. Imbruglia. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the first time that Greece has won gold at the Olympics for 80 years, and then they cut to someone with golden teeth after eating a medal. So I apologize for not being able to pronounce uh, that Greek Olympian. I didn't the... really get that joke. I didn't get that they were eating a gold metal like is that a is that a gag about the the lolly like the pirate booty kind of thing you get when you go to kids parties well, I, I kind I, of I, thought it was just that the gold medal had been melted down and turned into gold clay yeah. for teeth or something yeah I, <laughs> mean, I mean I mean if, if we if we don't get the joke I don't think we're alone because the audience didn't really get it either 
judging from the non-reaction. I think what it is is it's an ethnic stereotype that that Greek immigrants would get gold teeth or something. I, I don't know. It, it, I wasn't aware that that was an ethnic stereotype, but that's my best guess on what this joke is. Yeah. Right. This is a joke that needs a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So the next part is the UN. Move on. Move on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> The UN convoy turned around in Sarajevo because of a Moroccan runner was blocking its path. Cross to the war in Bosnia with Bruce McAvaney commentating. Again. Again, yeah. He's, fe- he's, he's featured a lot in this episode. Yeah. Now, the awesome foursome wins the Olympics and uh, someone who may have been more excited than, Pe- than Bruce McAvaney would be Peter Landy. Now, Rob does a great impression of this and just goes over the top. Is this a bit where he runs into the Yarra? Yeah. That freaks yeah. me out. Like, oh, my God, gross. I can't it's a bit filthy. The, <laughs> the awesome yeah. foursome were wonderful, though. I remember they did tours of the shopping centres when I went and got their autograph at Southland. Yeah, I remember seeing them in 96 at the Ticker Tape Parade in Sydney and take, took some photos of them for school project. No, university project, I should say. Um, and they were, yeah, they were just signing autographs and just really nice guys. I remember him years later when they were promoting Golden Valley Gold. Peaches, oh, yeah. peaches. <laughs> peaches and they pre-cuts pineapple. And you know the ad. Again, um, again, advertising works, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the funeral for Lord Cheshire uh, was held. Uh, and, yeah, this is a sucky joke, even that Tom regrets it later as well. Where yeah, a bouncing he- casket. <laughs> I quite enjoyed this joke, but that's only because I've seen the film The, the Dam Busters and I know what it's a reference to. And I, I quite like the lameness of the joke and the fact that they've bothered to do it. With a barrel drop <laughs> and It was and so detailed, like the bouncing and the editing of the bouncing and then the explosion. I mean, like, it was like, yeah. wow. Aaron, Aaron Bokeh's so special, the explosion. Yes. Yeah. That's a whole day's work of worth, just, of worth of work just for that crappy gag. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> They're all in costume, out on location. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> and yeah, all all that all that Tom can say at the end of it is can't believe we bothered doing that joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, the Olympic marathon about to happen with a Spanish field twist to it. Uh, and it cuts to footage of the running of the bulls. Excellent. Yeah. And and then as a throwaway ending, they decided to cut back to see to Peter Landy to see if he's uh, still going on or if he's settled down into the Yarra still. <laughs> yeah. Probably needed a shot of antibiotics after that. Oh, God, yeah. That, that was so wrong. <laughs> All right. And next segment is the first instalment of Piss Week World. Yeah. Oh, wow. Where you have the waterside, spooky haunted tent, the super flying fox, and take a spin in the high-speed market trolley, the wild animal sanctuary, and you get touched up by a 43-year-old man dressed up as an ill-defined cartoon character. (laughs) The first appearance of Shirty the Slightly Aggressive Bear. Yes. Yeah, unofficially, I suppose, yeah. Yeah. Wasn't, Wasn't called Shirty, but yeah, it's definitely Shirty. From Adventure Island, I think it was, on the ABC. Yes. Um, and it was called Panda from memory. And I believe, yeah, I prefer Shady. 
And wasn't it as well the first appearance of, well, other than the Piss Week Kids, but... And you've interviewed the Piss Week Kids. Yeah, I'm but... trying to go, I forgot their names. At the, oh, uh, you've got them on here. I've just got it open here. So you've got Nick and Justin. That's it, yeah. The first appearance of Nick and Justin as the Piss Anderson, Week Kids. Anderson, yes. yeah. So Justin was 14 when he was a member of the Leach Street cast and Nick was only eight years old. And uh, Matt, you interviewed them on the Champagne Comedy website a few years back. And yeah, there's a bit of a Q&A there. I won't read the whole thing out, but um, I think they, they had a a lot of fun there. Um, they had a blast doing the Piss Week sketches. They had no trouble doing anything that was asked from braving fierce flames to the icy cold waters of Dead Man's Weir. That's um, what Justin's saying. And Nick also said that everything was a lot of fun. Nothing was taken too seriously. The hardest part was trying to look sad while being put in ridiculous situations. But Tom Santo and Uncle Rob, as we called him at the time, always made it a good time. Ah. That's nice. So I wonder if they got paid. <laughs> they were related to Rob Sitch, these kids. And oh, were they? Oh, no, no, no. They'll... They just called him Uncle Rob. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they, so they weren't related to, to the lecture cast. They were actors, were they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they were discovered, though, weren't they? Were they over the fence from somebody's house? Or is it, have I made that up? I thought I read that somewhere. I might have to re-interview yeah, them. They were, they were like cousins of one of the cast or something and, and obviously not. We'll have to re-interview them, obviously, I and find out. I'll try and reach yeah. out to them, see if I can get them on the podcast. So go right. Yeah, I want to know if they, got any, if they got any cash or if they were just paid in like Pez dispensers or what the deal was. <laughs> <laughs> is well, that equity rates? I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I just had a quick look up of uh, Adventure Island. So uh, the shirty costume uh, was uh, originally Percy Panda, um, who was played by Jack Manuel. Um, And, yeah, Adventure Island was a a kids' TV series that ran from 1967 to 1972, over 1,100 episodes. And, yeah, Percy Panda got repurposed as Shirty. Uh, which isn't a surprise because uh, the, the, the series was recorded at the ABC studios at Ripponley, Melbourne. In the 60s, they just had absolutely no idea how terrifying stuffed toys or dolls or anything were. Like, did they? They just created the most horrifying characters that were supposed to be for kids. There was also John Michael Housen as a clown oh in that God. series yeah. as well, I should point yeah. out. Oh. <laughs> what a nightmare. Outrageous. <laughs> Oh, really bad John Michael Housen right there. That, that's Mick Malloy's John Michael Housen we're doing this. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Straight after the Pisswick World, we have Tom and Mick. I uh, is oh, doing some dated technology right now uh, where they are filling out an Olympic hero fax from Australia Post. <laughs> now, this one, yeah, this is very... Uh, I guess, topical and dated of the time uh, because they're still going on about Lisa Onieki after her drink being spiked. Mm. And uh, Mick sympathises with Lisa because someone tried to slip him a light beer at one stage. (laughs) Does anyone know um, when Mick's referencing a poolside interviewer who that might be? No, I tried YouTubing that to find any clips. I'm afraid I have no idea. Because I found he really laid into whoever that was, it was a woman, really yeah. full on. It was a bit much, actually. I was like, 
Oh. Oh, like, calm down. Aggressive Mick. That was for yeah. Yeah. I mean, some well, of those... Cro- well, quote, the, the IOC should have drug tested that bitch, unquote. Yeah. Wow. Although it got a great reaction from the yeah, audience. Yeah, whoever it was, probably. the audience seemed to be into it. Like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> if anyone knows who it is, feel free to reach out. I don't know who it was, but, you know, various Olympic coverage that I've watched, you know, some of those sort of poolside or trackside interviewers, they can be really harsh. Like, basically, someone will come in fifth or something and they'll say, well, why did you lose? You know, it's pretty much, that's pretty much the question. And they can be really, really hard. So maybe this woman was particularly sort of hard on some of the Australian athletes who we hoped would do better than they actually did. Yeah, they're probably trying to avoid being interview by her i think that's what yeah and and then then ironically in this sketch they actually come up with some these olympics herograms which are basically along the same lines of like why didn't you win you know which is slightly contradictory but anyway yeah very very harsh it wasn't it it's like you just got out of the pool we'll just give him a break for goodness sake yeah all right and and that's that scene that sketch ended up uh wrapping up with the hero facts to the people who didn't quite make it, the fingers in between the, you know, the up yours B sign, really. Yeah. Yeah. A bit hard. Yeah. Harsh. I guess it was at the time it had to be across the sporting events that were going on. I'm sure that nowadays, uh, if we were to, um, you know, tweet uh, Olympians, uh, they wouldn't be quite as harsh. No. What do you reckon? They probably <laughs> a bit on social media, some of these, you know, athletes, but. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. At, at least with the hero factors, there might be a chance that they would be vetted. Yes. The next segment being Graham and the Colonel. Now, this one, wow, this was a lot of uh, things that they went through with this. They decided to reuse the applause joke from last week that fell flat, where uh, they were saying, "Hey, that applause isn't for us," type thing. It's for all the it's for all the gold medal winners. Does anyone yeah. know when they started using their theme song? Because it it's it's greatly missed. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a snippet of the, um, the the clip just beforehand that they end up using for the full clip. Um, but yeah, there's no theme song. I thought there they was a get... theme song just without the proper intro. Yeah, they're still saying and now the latest in the sport with Graham and the Colonel rather than the one that we all know. Yeah, tough, tough uncompromising, no holds barred, no big your pardons. We can recite this uh, by heart. Yeah, right? it just lifts the whole segment. I can't wait for it to start being used. I'm yeah. sure it'll be really, really soon. Mm-hmm. I did love the um, stuff they started to talk about. The globetrotter visuals that Santo and Rob did in that opening bit was so funny. <laughs> oh, the, oh, the dream team? The dream team being Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Clive Drexler, Phil Smythe. <laughs> <laughs> Like One of these thumb. things is not like the others, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did Phil Smythe really have a comb over like that? It looked photoshopped, didn't I it? He was bald. He I was think very bald. Yeah, I think he was on the cusp of, of that. I, oh. I remember him being much balder when he was um, coach of the Adelaide 36, uh, 36s later on. Um, if you do a quick Google search, it's legit. <laughs> there is a he was proper actually photo. a great player, though, wasn't he? He he was he was a he was a really really well known as well and you know people didn't really know very many basketballers yeah but very well known yeah a big NBL player played for uh, Sydney Kings 
uh, or not at the time then, but uh, he was part of the Canberra Cannons. In 1992. And he had everything he wanted in a basketballer. He was short, white, and bald. <laughs> and there's solid gold medals at the Barcelona Olympics. The previous games, the medals were chocolate. Yeah. Quite a typical <laughs> joke, wasn't it? Yeah, the one with the second prize gets uh, the teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and the bronze medal gets bananas. <laughs> Five cents worth of bananas. Yeah. I just like how silly they get in this clip and when they throw the papers behind them and Sandra's going, ow, and the yeah. wig almost falls off. And, oh, you're actually reversing the ageing process there. I can see actually a bit of black hair. <laughs> that was a great bit. And the audience are really getting into the whole, oh, they're losing it, you know, the wig's coming off, they're corpsing. And the audience is really starting to react to that and this is where Graham and the Colonel becomes a massive part of the show. Yeah. Yeah, they're really relaxing into the roles of Graham and the Colonel by this point. They're understanding what's going to work, make the audience laugh. So it's 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 fun to watch it. Well, when they were talking about some of the sports that weren't right, um, but that should be in the games, uh, table tennis, where they show that you had to need a good bat and a bad bat. That's when they held Yeah, up it the... should be played at a, a holiday home. Yeah. This was absolute. Yeah genius material this it was hilarious like you have to stop play when your dad needs to put the station wagon in the garage <laughs> yeah yeah you need you all the furniture and seagrass matting yep. yeah and the shooters they didn't win a medal but they won a fluffy toy <laughs> and I, I love i love the line from santo and the guy that runs it's a bastard <laughs> yeah it's just a carny and it's the and the, the uh, there's a pole vault joke where it, it basically, it bends. It's a faulty pole vault. <laughs> Turn it to the shops. And the fencing should be done in castles. And there's no swashbuckle. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think they really missed the trick of not referencing Cryo Castle in that particular <laughs> bit. But anyway. Yes. There's one part which I didn't get, and I tried to YouTube it to try and make sense of the joke. Uh, the archer... Well, Archer uh, Simon Fairweather uh, didn't do well, especially after shooting so well in a Mars bar commercial. I didn't get that. No, I'm guessing mm. that there must have been a, an Olympic type theme Mars bar mm. campaign going mm. on. Yeah, I tried to find it. I could find uh, Steve Monaghetti advertising Mars bars in 1992 because they were the official sponsor. So there may have been a related ad to do with that. The old Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. Yep, because every Olympian is going to be having a Mars bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Olympians back then probably did eat Mars bars. <laughs> probably wasn't so hectic as it is now. And, uh, yeah. yeah, Rob just completely loses it over how wrong they were about the diving judges not making comments after they give scores. So I'm guessing that... Um, yeah, they didn't really comment too much uh, during it. And then they cut to Ethel Guy, which was a new faces yeah. joke. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, it's a shame they didn't cut to Bernard King. But, of course, Bernard King comes later in this series. Oh, uh, yes, of course, yeah. <laughs> Ethel, Ethel gets to say, that's a good diet, very nice work. But I think you could probably smile a little more, you know. You've got a lovely face, so let's see a little more of it. But good work tonight. I gave you a 6.5. <laughs> There we go, yeah. And the colonel wrapping up, saying uh, he's not feeling too well and someone spiked his thermos, a la Lisa Odiecki. Yeah, poor old Lisa. Yeah, she really copped it during it. Yeah, she copped it a lot during this episode. That immortal line, that's not my tartan. Yes. 
think I think that's also the first time we we actually see a, yeah a couple of thermoses out on the desk from memory. I don't think we've seen it the last three episodes. Yeah, that's another thing Graham and the Colonel really benefits from is the use of props. So when they get more comfortable <laughs> with that and use the props, that's a, always a winner. More of a season two thing, I think. And the closing is now that that they'll surprise that no one has slagged them off in the news. So they're all ready to. Yeah to fight against the reviewers. And they still had worst album covers. <laughs> with Now, I've got the list here. Uh, Kenny with the sound of Super K. And I'll, I'll be tweeting these images later too of the album covers during the week. So if you're uh, listening to this podcast, just check our Twitter feed later on. The next one was Ray Darnell with a man and his organ. <laughs> Jeez, that looks so wrong, doesn't it? The album cover. Uh, yeah. And even Joe Murray, part of the, well, he was their producer, uh, gave in Kim Fowley outrageous. The next one is Jeppy and Jeppy, or Geppy and Geppy, body to body. Mm. <laughs> so have you turned off your search history mm. when you look this up? He's, he's very her suit. And the final one, the Reverend Canon E.C. Blake pops with a purpose. Who, of course, went on to marry Sister Janet Mead. Yes. <laughs> I love that gag. <laughs> I don't think many people know who she is, but anyhow. The singing nun. Yeah. That that is I think, you know, if if you were our age in the early nineties, that's a bit of an obscure gag, but um I think I had to ask my parents who Sister Janet Mead was. Yeah. And they probably pulled out the vinyl and played the they Lord's did. Prayer and they did yeah. not have Sister Janet Mead. They did have an awful lot of Nanama Scurry though, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, she's still One thing on. about the album covers this week is that they seem like they were legit sent in by audience or, as as they said, the crew. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. Know why and, and, yeah, a, a couple of famous ones. So they, they mentioned the um, the man in his organ was from Graham Webb, who's a producer of Sounds Unlimited um, with Donnie Sutherland. Now, the ending is just uh, audience tickets with uh, Graham and the Colonel. And uh, while Graham is still trying to revive the Colonel after passing out with uh, Ray Darnell and his organ. Yeah. <laughs> I like the moment where Santo covers his ears because Rob's yelling so much. Yeah. We've missed the comedy credit in, in the credit sequence. Did anyone spot this? It is um, Michael Hirsch this week is assistant to Mr. Guy. That being yeah. Athel. Yeah. I saw that. I'm glad you. Someone points that out. I always keep missing and forgetting about it. Yeah. Uh, and while while we're at it, the, the special guests for this episode. Um, so yeah, we had Athel Guy. We know where he was. Uh, the Mercantile Rowing Club. We know where they were. And uh, yeah, Christopher Kirby, who uh, was right up the front, um, being uh, Rodney King's doppelganger. All right. Well, that basically wraps up the episode, doesn't it? It was a really solid no. episode. I thought. You know. I- yeah, I think they've yeah hit their stride. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, fourth episode in, and now they've uh, yeah found their feet. Definitely, they're, they're doing pretty well for a month in. Yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting to see if you guys can find any more reviews from this point on, because I reckon this is really when it's an unmissable show, and it'll be yeah. interesting to see if any critics change their tune or agree with that other than that that's uh, pretty much it for episode four season one of the late show and uh yeah so if you want to if you enjoyed this or you've got any uh extra little facts and 
including proving us wrong about Ripon Lee or if you know where the pool was being filmed or anything like that, or if you know someone else from the Saturday show, that would be awesome. Uh, feel free to reach out to us at TLS Champagne on Twitter or ChampagneLateShow at gmail.com. So other than from me, Matthew, thank you very much, Alison, Daniel, Kim, and Prue for joining once again. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. We'll catch you next time. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, created by fans for the fans. For more information on this podcast, please visit champagnecomedy.com. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions, mattfulton.com.au.